Greetings, Earthlings, and welcome to the Big Chew Podcast. I'm your host, Maria Stockmuller. Here at the Big Chew, we ask, hey, how can we live on Earth without the stupid? What can science tell us? What can spirit tell us? So grab a bite and let's masticate. If you think we and life evolved from DNA mutation and survival of the fittest and selfish genes, well, think again. That idea, also known as the modern synthesis, no longer holds, thanks largely to the feisty genius Lynn Margulis. Lynn Margulis gave us a new way to look at life and perhaps a new way to live it. She showed life doesn't evolve just through random DNA mistakes and competition. Instead, interdependence is the key. Cells are the baseline, not selfish genes. Loops and new connections replace linear branches of life. Nothing is an individual. Everything is a community. Evolution geographer James McAllister was Lynn Margulis's graduate student, friend, swimming buddy, and assistant for 10 years until her sudden death in 2011. He created animations of many of her discoveries and continues to digitize and represent her research and teaching. Jim and I sat at his dining room table and talked about Lynn's groundbreaking ideas, the flack she took as a rebel and a woman scientist, Gaia theory, and how her ideas of symbiosis and interdependence show us a radically different view of how to live. You've been in the, in the trenches in helping people understand what this shift is. So why don't you help us understand what the shift is? Well, it started off with Darwin and Wallace, and uh, they were looking for the origin of species together, although Darwin certainly had put a lot more time and effort into it. They independently came to the conclusion that species probably evolved by very gradual change with the fact that any offspring don't look exactly like their parents. There's, so you have descent with modification. You have something a little bit new in, in offspring. What the reason for that novelty is, is anybody's guess. But they just decided that in a competition, the animal that was slightly better at something would survive and the, and the losers would die out. Because one of the things that you have in nature is that you have biotic potential, which is that there are always more seeds, spores, offspring produced than the planet can support. This would be true for even a single species. So the curb on that biotic potential is natural selection. And it was this idea that the, the better adapted to the environment animals survive more often and pass their genes along. Their offspring are different, and then uh, the, in that competition, 
the ones that are, are better adapted to the environment, they pass their genes along. And this slowly, over time, this being better adapted, this ability to adapt to environments, gives you the winners in evolution. Mendel came along with his work on genetics. It wasn't genetics at the time, it was just traits. But with the peas. With peas. And he was trying to he, he was basically trying to show that Darwin was wrong, that change didn't progress, that actually changes in something like a pea, where you could take a red pea and a white pea and cross them and get a pink pea. Mm-hmm. That if you cross that pink pea with those former wild types, you you would get back to a red and a white pea. Is that, that true? Yes. Mm-hmm. And so that it appeared that rather than change being permanent and then progressive, mm-hmm. that change just was ephemeral and would things would change back. This was in line with biblical teachings. So, so you know it's right. <laughs> well, <laughs> he was. A, I mean, he was a university. He was a University of Vienna trained. Uh, scientist. But he was also Mendel. a monk. He was also a monk. And he had a very lively uh, very lively correspondence with the Pope. And he was essentially trying to prove Darwin wrong, which he seemingly did. Now, his papers didn't really make too much of a splash at the time. They were rediscovered sort of independently by two different groups in 1900. And then there was a conundrum, which was, if Mendel is right... And Darwin is right, one saying that things stay the same, and the other that things constantly change. How can that be? How can both of those things be true? And essentially what Fisher and Wright and Haldane and other people, very famous British scientists for the most part, were able to show statistically was that you could have both of those things exist in a mathematical statistical model this is where population genetics came from. And population genetics is based on the modern synthesis, the modern synthesis being uh, Darwin, Mendel, and then a synthesis of those two things into a, an explanation. The modern synthesis is it's... named that because it was synthesizing Darwin and Mendel. And it was doing this by way of a statistical model of how this could happen mathematically. And this, you get into all kinds of things like why is there altruism, etc., and that's because supposedly of kin selection. In other words, you wouldn't dive in a lake to save someone who's a stranger, but you might dive in a lake to save your uncle or your child because they're kin, right? There are things wrong with this explanation. One is the fact that the fossil record doesn't show a record of gradual change in organisms. Sometimes it does, but more often what it shows is a stasis where things don't change at all, and then all of a sudden you'll have this radiation of new forms in the fossil record. Is that punctuated equilibrium? And that's punctuated equilibrium. Yeah. So the change now is the recognition that this idea of random mutation, the mistake, that random mutations to the, to the genes, which could be either from a mutagen, like uh, something that would, that would 
cause a chemical change in the in the genes because you're exposed to it, mm-hmm. to just simply copying errors that when DNA is duplicated, that there might be copying errors. So these random mutations are what supposedly would drive evolution forward. But Dennis Noble, for instance, at Oxford has done just a calculation on the 25,000 genes in the human genome. The possible interactions to get those genes is a number that is 10 to the 70,000th. Now, that sounds like a big number, and boy is it ever, because the number of atoms in the universe is only 10 to the 80th. The odds that random mutation can explain how you would get us are just so long as to be essentially impossible. Now, impossible doesn't mean that sometimes random mutation does not add to evolution. Mm -hmm. It just can't possibly be the primary mechanism for how you get genomes of various organisms. Right. So when you say how we got us, that would apply to any organism, right? Like It would apply pretty much to a very, very many organisms mm-hmm. because, strangely enough, one of the things that was discovered when uh, they sequenced the human genome and you got the human proteonome, which is the which is the actual genes that encode for proteins. Because there's a lot of what used to be considered junk DNA, but now is known to have lots of other uses. It just doesn't happen that it encodes proteins. But that that proteome that we have is not particularly larger than, I mean, there are flatworms that have genomes that are larger than ours. So it's so weird. It's not a case of, saying this facetiously, obviously we're the top of the heap when it comes to evolution. We should have the biggest genome. Right, and the best words. And the best words. And and, uh, neither of those things, certainly we don't have the biggest genome. There are many critters running around that have genomes larger than ours. And is there a particular reason for that? Say a flatworm maybe doesn't have as many relationships with organisms that produce the kinds of effects that it needs? That's an interesting idea, and that may in fact be true. Um, You're talking about do things have symbiotic relationships with other organisms that then they borrow Mm. Met, uh, metabolic products and things like that from, or even sharing their genome so that they're able to do things that, that alone they wouldn't be able to do. Um, yes, there's mm-hmm. an awful lot of symbiosis going on in the, in the world out there. In fact, symbiosis is now probably seen as one of the very major drivers of evolution that symbiosis which can take place between very similar organisms, but more often than not is taking place between very different organisms. For instance, if I get a cold or if I get an infection, I may be developing a symbiotic relationship. Now, it's not a pleasant symbiotic relationship with a bacteria. Uh, Over time, if I survive that infection, that relationship could could possibly develop into a symbiotic relationship. We all have our microbiomes. This has become a big hot topic, in, right. in particularly in medicine and biology too. The recognition that on our skin, in our orifices, 
uh, in our gut that we have many persistent microbial symbionts and that we actually need these organisms to grow and develop properly and that we may even have problems like chronic bowel Mm -hmm. and other things because when we were kids and developing our gut, we didn't stick our dirty fingers into our mouths often enough Mm -hmm. to be inoculated with the kinds of organisms that we really need. Kids who were born uh, via C-section don't have the same, because you get so much of your microbiome from the birth canal as you're coming out from your mother. And in fact, that's so true that they're now taking a vaginal swab and swabbing the baby so that the baby now gets the bacteria Mm -hmm. that it should have gotten by coming out the natural birth canal Mm -hmm. as opposed to being taken with a C-section. And other studies have suggested that that babies born with C-sections before this recognition Mm -hmm. actually suffer from the fact that they don't acquire those Mm -hmm. bacteria. Can you just... Describe what a symbiont is. Okay. Probably the, the, the best known by most people uh, idea of a symbiont is a lichen. Mm. Uh, you see these, they're the green sort of frondy things that grow on rocks and trees. Mm-hmm. You might think they're a plant, but they're actually a partnership between, between a fungi and either an alga or a cyanobacteria. A cyanobacteria being a bacterium and an alga being a eukaryote. And the interesting thing about lichens is that they grow in the most forbidding places, high on rocky mountains. Their one need is to periodically get wet. And so any place where it's dry but once in a while you get rain is a perfect habitat for them. Now, this is not a place where alga could live alone. Mm -hmm. Because it's not wet enough. Right. And the fungi couldn't live there either because the fungi don't have photosynthesizing, so they would not be able to produce the amount of sugars and Mm -hmm. carbon resources that they need for their metabolism. So this chimera, this joint partnership between the two, produces a variety of different kinds of lichens. And these lichens are very hardy, and they live in the most unforgiving of environments. And both of those partners are symbionts. Okay. So in other words, it's not it's not really a relationship between a symbiont and a host. It's really a relationship between a symbiont and another symbiont. Oh, okay. So even in our relationship with our microbial symbionts, we're a symbiont too, although the term that's being used now to describe the animal tissue in that partnership is they call that the holobiont. So you and I are holobionts and our, our microbial symbionts are part of that thing called the holobiont, but the holobiont is really the animal... Kind of the meat cage. The meat cage, yeah. That's a good, that's a good definition for it, yeah. And how would you describe the modern synthesis? What, what are the primary... Pillars the... of the modern synthesis? Yeah. Random mutation, so mutation that is really blind to the environment, uh, that the whole germ line of an organism is really isolated from... The environment. The germline being the um, reproductive the cells, right? And Sperm and egg. eggs, yeah. yeah. Or the equivalent in other kinds of organisms. Random mutation, random in relationship, because random, you have to sort of define, well, random in relationship to what? Because mm-hmm. random sort of requires in relationship to something. 
It's ra random in relationship to function. So supposedly you were getting function by having accidental changes that had nothing to do with the environment and just by happenstance mm -hmm. would occasionally work out to the benefit of the organism that had that change. The, these mutations, obviously, because they only once in a while work out, are also gradual. In other words, the change would occur gradually over time as these accumulated. Now, one of the other problems with accumulation of random mutation is that, by and large, any mutation that you get in the DNA is most often harmful or fatal. So you really have to add in random accumulation of beneficial mutations because you don't want to accumulate deleterious mutations. Let's see, what else goes into the modern synthesis? Well, that the individual is the unit of selection. Mm -hmm. You have individuals selected by natural selection, but it's the population that actually speciates. What do you mean? You get changes in the population in what's called the, the, the spread of these alleles or the beneficial genes. Individuals don't speciate. It's populations that speciate. So that's, those are two other things. The individual is the unit of selection. The population of organisms is the, the level at which you have speciation occurring. This is kind of the default or has been the default thinking in evolutionary science and biology and, and us understanding how anything got here. So why has it been so popular? Why did it take hold and who were some of the main proponents of it? Well, there are many, many people who, who found this convincing. In fact, so convincing that it's been treated in, by many people as a, a certainty. And, uh, and we could get into certainty, but certainty is something that really doesn't really have much of any business in science, since what you're dealing with with scientific knowledge is not the truth, but with approximations. Mm -hmm. And they can be extremely, extremely good approximations. This is what makes science as useful as it is, the fact that the approximations are so good and that the explanations are reproducible and predictable. First, there was this whole cadre of very famous British scientists, Fisher, Wright, Haldane, O'Sullivan, Wright, but probably the person that overwhelmingly is known by the majority of people that are lay people is Richard Dawkins. Now, Richard Dawkins was really taking his mentor's work, Hamilton, and popularizing it in books like The Selfish Gene. So I don't think even Richard Dawkins would claim that these are ideas that are original with him. He is like me. I'm, I'm, I, my mentor was Lynn Margulis, and a lot of what I think and talk about is very much the kinds of things that Lynn believed. Mm -hmm. um, but Richard Dawkins popularized the modern synthesis by giving it the literary device of the selfish gene. He has said on occasion that, that that's not a metaphor, that that's the literal case, that genes are selfish. but Selfish in that they want to be reproduced. Whether they want to or whether that is just in the nature of them to be self-promoting, mm -hmm. kind of. 
But of course, what Lynn would say about that is a molecule, even a very complex molecule like DNA or RNA, can't really be selfish. It doesn't, it doesn't have a self. That the minimum required to be a self is a cell. And DNA is merely a component of the cell. And I've used the metaphor of a bunt pan. Do you know what a bunt pan is? Yes, I know what a bunt sort pan a, is, but <laughs> sort of a sort of a it's sort of a very fancy pan in which you you bake a German cake. Well, DNA is like a bunt pan. It okay. gives you it sh- it gives you a shape, but without a baker, ingredients, a mixing bowl, uh, an oven, you're not going to make much of a cake. So mm-hmm. you can't really say the bunt pan is the absolutely most important thing to the making of a bunt cake because I'm sure no one wants to eat a bunt pan. <laughs> they want to eat that thing that's made out of flour and eggs right. and butter and sugar. and So a bunt cake is a system that requires all of those parts. Mm-hmm. And you can't, you can't get a bunt cake without all of the parts and you can't privilege one of the parts. You can't mm-hmm. say, well, oh, the pan. Because... You can really probably use a different kind of pan. It won't be as fancy looking, but it will probably taste pretty much like a bunt cake. So was Richard Dawkins basically saying that there was like a selfish bunt pan and that the bunt pan was trying was, to... The bunt pan was basically directing things. Yes, okay. Right? <laughs> yeah. The, the bunt pan was the, was the mover and the shaker. Mm-hmm. And this is a whole idea of hierarchy that... I think the new view of evolution would say that, not that there's no hierarchy at all in biology and stuff, but that more often than not, what you're really talking about is holarchies. In other words, you're talking about systems that are made of smaller systems that are made of smaller systems that are made of smaller systems, or conversely, bigger systems that are made of smaller systems Mm -hmm. and bigger and bigger. And it's not a linear thing. It is not linear. Yeah. In fact, the whole idea of in biology is that you have an awful lot of cycling mm-hmm. where rather than a linear cause and effect, like DNA is the cause and the effect is the, the organism, that what you really have is a cause effect that where, where the, the effect feeds back to the cause, and so what you really have is more of a cycle or, a, or loops of feedback that go into making these things. The idea that the germ plasma or the DNA is isolated from the environment has now been shown to be wrong, that in fact uh, the nucleus of a cell is not a sanctuary protecting the DNA from the environment. It's actually part of the cell that communicates about the environment to the DNA and that the genome and the cell are able to do their own natural genetic engineering in real time. So it's possible for evolution to actually occur within the lifespan of an organism. In other words, the organism itself may change. Mm -hmm. This can also be seen in, in the plasticity of organisms, so that if you have certain trees for instance, and you grow them at low altitude, you get a certain kind of phenotype. You get a certain shape of that tree. It's Mm -hmm. a certain look. If you grow that tree at a much higher altitude, 
the environment affects that tree and you'll get smaller needles or shorter branches. And this was something that, that Alexander von Humboldt first noticed. And, I love him. And, yeah. <laughs> it's hard not to. What a, I mean, and I love that kind of polymath, yeah. weirdo, yeah. you know. He and Goethe were tight. Yeah. 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 Yeah, <laughs> yeah Humboldt is a pretty amazing character. I mean, uh, you know, he is somebody that uh, strangely enough, he died the same year that uh, Origin of the Species was published in 1859. And science, which had been going along in this very kind of connected, big-picture systems kind of approach, which is what what von Humboldt really was. He was a kind of a, a systems thinker. Mm -hmm. uh, all of a sudden went through a kind of metamorphosis where, where now you had people thinking much more reductionist kind mm -hmm. of breaking things down into their component parts and everything and reductionist science really taking over. Right. And that's where we've been pretty much For until now, years. right? Yeah. Reductionist where you you break it apart. There's no sense that the um whole is larger than the sum of the parts. That if you can identify the parts, you've got it. Right. And there's a reason for that when people said the system is more than the sum of the, the of the parts. Reductionists would want to know, well, what do you mean when you say more? What's the more? And I think that uh, this came into ideas of vitalism and lots of other things that were eschewed by, by the scientific community. They didn't want to get into things that seemed supernatural, etc. So it wasn't until people could say, well... When you put a system together, the more, like if you have the parts to a bicycle, the frame, the wheels, the chain, the sprockets, the pedals, the handlebar, and you put that together, you do have the sum of the parts. You have those parts assembled into a bicycle, but now you have an emergent property, which is transportation. Mm. You can now get on that bicycle and pedal it. And studying those parts alone in isolation is not particularly a good way of discovering that those parts together can provide you with transportation because alone they don't. So this idea of emergence, that there are emergence properties that come out of systems when they're complete and when they're performing is something that now we can say that's what the more in the, the system is more than the sum of its parts. That more is these emergent properties that you get that have to do with the interrelationship of parts, the dynamism of, of the parts, uh, the performance of the system, etc. So you have this reductionist view of evolution and Lynn Margulis, uh, who was your friend and mentor, decided that that was not accurate, and she was working from the studies of a number of Russians, right? Is that? Well, when she went to school, they, um, these ideas were out there, and she, she, one, of her, one of her professors was uh, Hans Ries, and he used to read things to his class. One of the books that he read was 
Symbionticism and the Origin of Species. This was a book by Ivan Wallen, who was an American. Mm -hmm. And he didn't know about symbiosis and symbiogenesis, which was what the Russians had called this. So he invented his own word, symbionticism. But he was the person that Lynn heard uh, that said, isn't it an interesting possibility that germs, sort of the the, the organisms that we think of as being pathological may very well be the building blocks of life. Mm. Symbiotic research in Russia is a, more than a century long. So, so these scientists, yes, they were working in the 1800s, the very early 1900s, but these people were being very careful. The instruments that they used were often very, very good. There were very excellent German microscopes that were made of course natürlich <laughs> very precise we love our lenses so lynn was really was really interested in this in the question and this was the question in the lab there was a there was a drawer actually a file file cabinet drawer and the drawer was labeled the question <laughs> the question and the question was what was the origin of the eukaryotic cell now the biggest divide in the biological world is the divide between bacteria, which are cells that have no organelles or nucleus, and then eukaryotic cells, quite, usually quite a bit larger, that have various kinds of organelles and have a nucleus. And by organelles, we mean things like mitochondria. Chloroplasts, yeah. a cytoskeleton, Golgi apparatus, that sort of thing. And Lynn would maintain that the eukaryotic cell was something that was basically the product of symbiosis and symbiogenesis between bacteria. So bacteria were really the building blocks out of which eukaryotes developed. I remember seeing your animation of this, yep. where you've got the cells and then the one kind of eats the other one but doesn't digest it or anything, yes. and they just kind of coexist. and. Now, Lynn sort of made a big splash because she she championed the idea that chloroplasts, which are the green photosynthetic entities in cells, organelles in cells, and that mitochondria, which are the oxygen-using and energy-producing organelles of the cell, she said these things used to be free-living bacteria. Mm -hmm. Now this is very different than the modern synthesis because remember, things in the modern synthesis grow out of a uh, out of a model of a tree where you have a singular trunk and then you have branches and the branches simply bifurcate. They simply diverge and everything comes down through time as a divergent branch on that tree. Mm -hmm. Well, here you have an explanation of how new creatures come about. That is the branches actually coming together and what's called in surgery anastomosing. In other words, joining and rejoining each other, not simply forking, but coming back together. And sometimes branches from different trees joining mm -hmm. and coming together. So this is an extremely radical notion when you compare it to the modern synthetic explanation for evolution, which is that everything comes from a Lynn like to say it was a very paternal kind of, you know, I want to protect my bloodline, you know, uh, 
No, what is it when you when you mix the races? What's that called? Oh, miscegenation. 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 Yes. Well, the modern synthesis is something that is very anti that. Yeah. And so here you have Lynn proposing something that is very much that you know, different creatures coming together, blending, and becoming a new creature. You know, plus the fact that it seems fantastical. It seems like the kind of stuff out of Greek mythology where you have a yeah. half man, half horse. You know, Pegasus with wings. You know, th these chimeras. It is chimeric, but it takes place by a long relationship of organisms in close physical contact. When when Lynn became excited about this early in her scientific career, did she have any compatriots who were? thinking similar thoughts, or was she really just having to stick her own neck out? There were a lot of people working in symbiosis, mm -hmm. and uh, she, she told me about asking colleagues, well, how, how, do, you, how do you do symbiotic re research when you've got sort of the evolutionary, you know, the neo-Darwinist evolutionary biologist sort of monopolizing all of most of biology? Mm -hmm. And the answer that she got from people who were doing symbiosis research was to simply ignore them. In other words, go on about your research and just ignore the fact that you have people who don't believe this is uh, a possibility. And I think that that's in large part sort of what she did, but I think Lynn was also feisty enough that she liked the she liked the intellectual argument, so uh, she was willing, willing to champion these ideas. Did Lynn think while she was researching and while she was you know, taking all kinds of heat for her ideas but still getting them out there, did she think that it was a major, major shift? Yes, mm -hmm. she, she knew it was a major shift. Although I think it's very interesting, uh, you know, Dick Teresi for the interview that she did for uh, Discover Magazine asked her uh, about her controversial views and she said, well, I don't consider them controversial, I just consider them right. And that comes off sounding very egotistical, but I think that really was the, the way that Lynn looked at these things. It wasn't that she was controversial, it was that the, tr the treatment these ideas received by the mainstream made them controversial. She was a woman who spent hours at the microscope. I mean, she loved nothing better than to spend a weekend at school looking at organisms and phenomena under the microscope because she wouldn't be interrupted mm -hmm. on a weekend, or she'd be interrupted a lot less. Even the organization of her email and phone calls and stuff all went through Celeste Azekine and her, her lab manager mm -hmm. so that uh, the amount of distraction that was sort of thrust on Lynn would be minimized, you know. Uh, the Department of Defense wants to talk to you. They want to, they, they're interested in, in, you know, the research that you've done uh, that has some bearing on anthrax. Is it going to be open research that will be available to everybody? No, it'll be secret. I'm not interested. <laughs> <laughs> so, and let's talk about what her being a woman had to do with the reception of her ideas. Well, I think the fact that she was a woman it didn't win her any points. 
science is dominated by males and has been for a long time, and it's kind of an old boys club, there's a certain amount of you know chauvinism and a certain amount of misogyny in 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 science. I think that her treatment, Barbara McClintock's treatment, I think it's pretty easy to say that had something to do with their gender. It didn't have to do with whether they were a good scientist or not. And can you just say what Barbara McClintock did? Barbara McClintock uh, was a genetic cytologist who worked with Indian corn maize and was the person that discovered transposons, that that uh, movable elements within the genome. And when she told her male colleagues about this, she was ridiculed to the point where she stopped working and publishing. And it wasn't until 30 years later when they discovered the same things mm -hmm. that she was awarded the Nobel Prize. Mm -hmm. So that was 30 years from a, you know, a marvelous researcher that we lost thanks to chauvinism and misogyny, I would say. What difference does it make? I mean, obviously it makes a difference scientifically, but how do these two ideas create a different kind of worldview? Well, they do. They create a profoundly different worldview. I'm, I'm looking at a couple of slides that I used in a, in a presentation. So I can, just, I can just give you some of these words and compare the the modern synthetic view of the world to yeah. what I would call the biological relativity view of the world. Or the the, and that being the symbiotic yeah. holobionic Inter integrative approach to to biology as mm -hmm. opposed to the modern synthetic approach. The modern synthesis you have a an approach that's basically based on zoology. It's based on the fossil record of animals hard parts that goes back to about 542 million years. Well, that's a very interesting place to base life on Earth and the evolution of life on Earth from because life actually starts 3,800 million years ago. So 542 million years doesn't really only covers about one-eighth of the record of life on Earth. Just looking at it through animals and... Right. And that's what, isn't Richard Dawkins a zoologist? Yes. Yeah. And strangely enough, the interesting thing is that Lynn was trained in zoology and mm -hmm. genetics. So mm -hmm. um, she's not someone who is unfamiliar with these ideas. She just knew them and knew that it couldn't be the answer. So you have a very zoological-based thing, which really almost tends to become, because of because of a historical precedence, the whole idea of the Earth being the center of the universe, mm. uh, which is really kind of a stand-in for us being the center of the universe. It's a very, it's not only zoological, it's, all, it's, it's a very mammalocentric, very anthropocentric, sure. actually, view of evolution. For instance, it puts us on the top of the heap. And now that we've arrived, many people actually think evolution has stopped. Do they know about antibiotic resistance? <laughs> That's what I always say to Christian fundamentalists who don't believe in take last, evolution. Take, take last year's shot. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, do you, do you take your full course of antibiotics yeah. or not? 
So the modern synthesis says that sort of DNA is, does it all. You know, DNA is the, the mover and shaker of mm -hmm. evolution. The biological relativity view is DNA alone does nothing. I mean, it needs the rest of the cell in order for it to perform its function. Modern synthesis says that the individual is the unit of selection, but what is the individual they're talking about? Because we now have this new view of individual animals as being hollow bionts. They're not really individuals, they're communities. They're really ecosystems. So I would say even when you're picking an isolated elk, you're picking a community. If, if that is the unit of selection, it's a group that's being selected. Modern synthesis is very much anti the idea of group selection. This idea of tree models, that you can model things on a tree that has a stem and then just branching, mm -hmm. constantly branching things, as opposed to that the way evolution works is through networks, through interconnections of even different organisms from different taxonomic levels. The modern synthesis was based in statistics and math. The new view is very much based in empirical evidence, experiment and observation. You have this idea of randomness in the modern synthesis. You have self-organizing, natural genetic engineering taking place in this new view. We've talked about reductionism versus systems thinking. The idea of the change is gradual when in fact when you have two organisms join forces you can get these great leaps. Yeah. So what's called saltation, a great leap in... Uh, and this much more readily explains punctuated equilibrium than the modern synthesis. So when you have things finally merging and coming up with a new organism, then you have these radiations of organisms from that. Maybe the, the two biggest things are the survival of the fittest. This is, this is kind of the shorthand for the modern synthesis, survival right. of the fittest. And this sort of leads you to a concept of the world as competitive, dog-eat-dog, etc. And what is not taken into account in that view is the fact that you look at extinction events the animals that most readily go extinct are the ones that have really specialized in the environment that was not changing very much in other words as long as you have an unchanging environment you can really specialize at extracting all of the nutrients in that environment etc the more specialized you get however if that environment changes the more susceptible you are to that change being lethal. So the flip side of being the fittest is that you may also be the most fragile. Right. That's, a very, that's a very different view than survival of the fittest only. Sometimes it's the generalist that survives, not the fittest mm -hmm. that survives. And the other thing is that when you start looking at symbiosis and symbiogenesis, symbiosis being the ecological idea of two differently named organisms living in physical contact over the life of at least one of them. And then symbiogenesis being that that ecological relationship becomes an evolutionary relationship because you start, you begin to see new behaviors, new traits, new tissues, new organs, new organelles, 
as these things merge and you go from, say, behavior to genetic over the course of time where first you're sharing just the fact that the two of you together can do something to finally merging even genetically where you're swapping genes mm -hmm. and that sort of thing. Well, bacteria swap genes all the time, don't bacteria they? Bacteria do. Yeah. Yeah. There's the, really the, the notion of speciation in bacteria doesn't really work. In fact, I asked a question in the latest environmental evolution newsletter that I put out, which is, you know, we know that bacteria quorum sense. In other words, they, they have decision-making abilities. What we don't know is what the extent of those decision-making abilities are. Are bacteria single individual cell organisms? Or are they a dispersed life form where those, all of those cells are actually part of one being? That's not without precedent. And there are some interesting biological films where you can watch organisms that basically have these, these diverse life forms where, for instance, a labyrinthula is a slime mold. Oh, yeah. Have you seen labyrinthia? I've seen how they make yeah, pathways right. and stuff, yeah. And then there's uh, dictostelium, which is a slime mold that exists part of its life as individual amoeba. Mm -hmm. But the amoeba, when it, starvation starts to happen, a chemical signal is sent out. Those amoeba all aggregate. They turn into a sort of a slug-like looking creature. The slug finally finds a suitable spot to perch itself. And then they differentiate into a base, a stalk, a right? stalk yeah. and, a, and a fruiting head that blows apart into spores. Those spores land in new places, open up, and out come amoebas again. It's so weird, man. Don't you think? Well, it just goes to show you that we're not a good model for life <laughs> on Earth. Because life is much more diverse than we imagine. So doesn't life also go much deeper into the earth than had previously been? I don't think they've been able to drill a hole deep enough to get to a place in the earth where they don't find bacteria already there. You don't have to move that fast over 3,800 million years to, to get deep into the earth. And remember, True. these things are very small. Solid rock is not that solid. It's full of fissures and cracks and, and these things are traveling down those fissures because that's where water is. The water has dissolved minerals and salts and things mm -hmm. like that that the, that the bacteria need to metabolize. So they're just, they're just following food. We used to think that bacteria couldn't live in extremely strong acid or extremely salty environments. Mm. Now we find out that indeed they can. This is one of the reasons they didn't believe that uh, ulcers were caused by bacteria because no one would believe bacteria could live in the acids of your stomach. And I believe the fellow that uh, got the Nobel Prize for, for this work in medicine actually pointed out that back somewhere around 1902, people had proposed exactly the same thing that he had really? proposed. And uh, they had been poo-pooed by, you know, well, mm. nothing could live in the stomach acid, so therefore mm. that can't be the explanation. This is, this is the kind of certainty that scientists always have to keep an open mind about. You know, it's one thing to be skeptical, show me the evidence, but it's a very different thing to say, that's just rubbish. That mm -hmm. can't possibly be true.
I'm just going to dismiss it without any investigation whatsoever of mm -hmm. the claim. There's an awful lot of science that comes along that is dismissed and denigrated and ridiculed until someone realizes, hey, that's actually right. So where are we now in terms of Lynn's theories and symbiogenesis? I mean, you think that the tide has turned, right? Well, the tide has definitely turned. In, in fact, there's been kind of a debate going on between two, two different groups, the people who are sort of neo-Darwinists who are still defending the modern synthesis and an, another group of scientists that see all of these, you know, hybridization, symbiogenesis, natural genetic engineering, plasticity, niche construction, having much more importance in evolution than, than they've ever been given. And the argument has been, is it time to replace the modern synthesis with a new, with some sort of new theory and framework. And they've been arguing, no, the modern synthesis can just incorporate all these new things. But so many of the new things are antithetical to what the modern synthesis stood for. One of the, a couple of the major proponents of keeping the modern synthesis around have admitted, when they say modern synthesis, they don't mean a theory. They certainly don't mean the old theory. What they mean is sort of a the milieu of evolutionary biology, like sort of like the modern synthesis is now just sort of applied to whatever evolutionary biologists are talking about, discussing and researching. Well, that would be all well and good, but theory has a very definite definition yeah. in science, and that's not it. It's not an amalgam of all of the good ideas we've come up with since we invented this explanation, even the ideas that fly in the face of that explanation, you know, a theory is a statement of, of fact. Right, and a lot of people, just lay people, don't understand that theory, when, the word theory when used in science is a very different thing than just in colloquial discussion like, oh, I have a theory why that didn't work out. Yeah, or, people, have, people think that an educated or maybe even an uninformed guess mm -hmm. is a theory. It's mm -hmm. not. A theory is a very educated guess, a, a guess that has a lot of evidence supporting it and very little evidence, preferably none, that says, well, that theory can't be correct. Now, what happens over time with theories is that things are found that, that bring certain parts of the theory into question. These are anomalies. They're, they're something that doesn't fit with the theory. And at some point, New theories come along and replace old theories. This is just, this is just business as usual in science. Mm -hmm. It's not like I think that this the modern synthesis has has really become for a lot of its proponents almost a religious kind of belief, and it doesn't matter at this point how much, uh, how many Galileos and Copernicuses come along with information that seems to say that old theory isn't right. They're just going to, they just want to cling to that name. Andy Knoll at Harvard says that evolution progresses one funeral at a time. <laughs> because, because the scientists die out. Right. You have to, you have to have the, the old timers that, 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 that have status and tenure and, and book deals and, and uh, lab funding based on 
ideas that are now being proven wrong, you can't expect those people to all of a sudden say, oh, please don't fund my lab. Please don't buy my book. Except for, well, Dennis Noble is, uh, he's no spring chicken. He's not. And he's gone through the, that evolution himself of going yeah. from a, basically a someone that, that was a reductionist and understands completely the power of reductionism. I'm not saying that reductionism isn't powerful. It right. certainly is. It's, you know, it's, it's the reason we have the modern world of technology that right. we have. It's largely due to reductionism. But in this world that we have, there's not a lot of wisdom about how to live on this planet. And I would submit that that is the reason that you need a systems approach that says reductionism is fine, but you got to balance it with like mm -hmm. putting things together and taking a look at what what is the what are the ramifications of this system that you've put together. At this point on the planet, do we really need more fossil fuel pipelines, for instance, when we're moving away from that? Do we really need to to try to keep coal miners busy when when the, the best thing that can be said about coal is that it gives you black lung? <laughs> and I don't know who said it, but I know that uh, Al Gore repeats it in An Inconvenient Truth, a very nice quote that basically says, don't expect a man to argue against his livelihood. Let's talk about Gaia theory. Yeah, so... Uh, Gaia, not as like some organism, but as a process, would you say, or as a... Well, as the largest ecosystem of the planet, mm -hmm. made of many smaller ecosystems. You know, we even have words for these things, you know, uh, niches, habitats, environments, ecosystems, biomes, and then Gaia. Mm -hmm. Gaia being the, the sum of biomes on the planet. Mm -hmm. Biomes being sort of the, the biggest uh, breakdown of ecosystems. So that you have like northern forests mm -hmm. and that sort of thing it would be a biome. Yeah, James Lovelock was employed by NASA because he was really good at making instruments, uh, very, very precise measuring instruments. And they wanted this kind of precision because they were flying landers to Mars and they wanted uh, life detection and other things. So he was thinking about this and he was in a meeting one day where uh, they were discussing these ex these life detection experiments. And it just occurred to him that all of the experiments that were being proposed were sort of like setting out a dish of chicken soup and seeing if anything came along and ate it. In other words, it was all based on life on planet Earth and using that as a model for what Martian life would mm -hmm. be like. He brought this up and said, we really should be looking for a a detection experiment that would work on life even if it doesn't look at all like life on planet Earth. But how would you define life then? Well this is very interesting because what happened was that the leader of the project kind of said essentially kind of okay smarty pants why don't you come up with that experiment that detection system and Lovelock realized he was in a bit of a spot because how would you detect life that didn't look anything like life on Earth. And his answer to that was to say that life, regardless of what it's based on or anything else, is going to have to use the fluid media on the planet, either the atmosphere or the atmosphere and oceans, if you have oceans. Now, Mars doesn't have an ocean, so it's going to have to use the atmosphere. That 
anything that would be alive would have to use the atmosphere both to bring nutrients and the things that it needs for metabolism to it, and it would also need those that same kind of fluid media to take its waste products away. Well, what would this do to the atmosphere? And the answer was it would throw the atmosphere out of chemical equilibrium because you had, would have something uh, putting materials into the atmosphere that you wouldn't find in the atmosphere if the planet were just lifeless. Mm -hmm. Strangely enough, not very long after this, they got the spectral analysis of Mars, and it showed that Mars was near chemical equilibrium. So there was very little chance that there was any life on Mars. And there still is. There's still, you know, if, if there's life on Mars, it's, it's, uh, it's not the kind of abundant, life that we have here because it's not producing enough of an effect on the atmosphere of the planet. When he realized this, he realized that he had discovered life on Earth because the atmosphere on Earth is totally reactive. You have a mix of oxygen and methane, things that combine and burn and blow up and, you know, and that the only way you have this is if these things are constantly being replenished. In other words, oxygen is constantly being added to the environment. Methane is constantly being added to the environment. And what is doing that? There's only one answer. Life. Life is what's doing it. Well, when he realized this, he wanted to know more about what are the organisms that produce the atmosphere on Earth. And that was when Carl Sagan told him he should talk to Lynn. And that was where their collaboration began. Because um, Were they still married at the time? When this no, happened? No, no. Mm -hmm. No, they've been long, long divorced. But uh, I think there was a great deal of respect as far as mm -hmm. scientific respect between Lynn and Carl. So Lovelock met and talked with Lynn and realized that here was somebody that, well, first of all, he said she was one of the first people that he talked to that really took his whole idea seriously. She just heard it and kind of intuitively went, oh, yeah, of course. Of course it's life that's producing the atmosphere. I mean, it's the cyanobacteria. And I think... What he learned from her was that she had such a, a great grasp of the microcosmos that she realized that most of this stuff, most of the stuff that goes on on the planet isn't done by things that are big like us. This mm -hmm. is one of the things that, this is a Linism. Big like us. <laughs> big like us. It's things that are, that are below the level of our, of our unaided eye. It's the microcosmos that's right. doing all this work. 99% of the life on the planet is the microcosmos. How long did the two of them work together? They worked together right up until uh, Lynn passed away. I mean, oh, they, which she did in 2011, right? In 2011, mm -hmm. yeah. And were they working on new ideas about Gaia theory? or? No, I think that, well, there were, there were certainly new ideas. Uh, originally, the Gaia theory really dealt with the temperature mm -hmm. being regulated by the by life on Earth. So there's various kinds of modulation or regulation. Now, can life regulate beyond physical constraints? Of course, no, it can't. You know, it can it can moderate things. So they were interested in temperature, the pH, the acid alkalinity of the planet or the oceans, retention of water, and then to that have been added other things. The salinity of the oceans has remained, well, up until recently, mm. has remained very, very constant. And that should not be the case because every time you have 
water running off the land and into the ocean is carrying with it salts and other things. And so over time, with evaporation and with more and more salt being added, it should get a whole lot more saline. And it has a little bit recently, but over the long course of the Earth, it hasn't. So how is salinity regulated by life? Plate tectonics may be a Gaian phenomenon because that also, you don't have plate tectonics on Mars, for instance, because you don't have oceans on Mars. Part of plate tectonics requires the presence of oceans. Now, what does an ocean have to do with life on Earth? Well, well, it's where we came from. Life seems to retain water. For instance, uh, Mark McMenamin and his wife have written a really wonderful book. It's called Hypersea. When you look out over the land, you're looking at all of this life. And what, what is that life predominantly? Water. It's water. Mm -hmm. So you have this whole ocean of water that's been brought onto the land and preserved, right? In spite of the sun, in spite of evaporation and everything else. You know, there's transpiration, but this stuff slows down that whole process and utilizes it. Mm -hmm. So um, the whole idea that life may be responsible for the fact that there are large oceans on, on, on planet Earth, uh, that life is responsible for the retention of that water. So these are extensions of Gaia that are, that are being explored. Just the, just the regulation of climate is something where we don't have all of the answers to how, how does Gaia work? How, how does Gaia do that? Now we know that, for instance, over rainforests, which are very dark and would absorb a lot of heat, you have rainforests produce their own cloud cover. Clouds are white. White reflects most of the heat from the sun back into, the, into space. So it actually, a rainforest actually cools itself by transpiring water up to form clouds over it. In the ocean, you have these huge, and I'm talking, you can see them from satellites, huge blooms of coccolithophorids and other kinds of, of plankton, and they're little carbonate shells. So they lighten the color of the water, and it raises the albedo, the water cools down. Mm -hmm. So there are, there are ways in which we know that life does have an effect on the temperature of the planet. So what does this do for you? knowing all this stuff and I think one of the things that's done is that I, I really have an appreciation when I just when I go outside and I that I am basically surrounded by by just this teeming of life underfoot in every leaf and needle of every tree and also I think that if you adopt a much more symbiotic approach, which, you know, a lot of people want to characterize as, as cooperation. There's certainly competition and cooperation in nature. These are words that are so anthropocentrically loaded that Lynn would just say they're not really useful for the analysis. They're too much about sort of us putting our mm -hmm. stuff on the natural world. Uh, but you start to believe that there's a real, there's another way for us to be on the planet that is a much wiser and, and more productive way of being than we've been so far. Is there anything in your own particular life that you've changed because of this kind of awareness? I think I'm, I'm certainly much more aware of my impact on the planet mm -hmm. and on 
<laughs> I'll just uh, one of the, one of the funny things is that is that I sort of I recognize that there's very little difference between plants and animals. Hemoglobin, red blood has a uh, an iron atom in the molecule, and plants have a I think it's magnesium mm-hmm. in place of of iron. I may be wrong about that. I'm not I'm not a biochemist, but there's there's essentially life is all pretty much the same kind of stuff. So. My wife was out here last week making, you know, getting rhubarb from the garden and cutting it up to make a pie. And I was saying, those rhubarb are probably not real happy about the idea of this pie. <laughs> and I, 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 I do think about the fact that all cells on the planet metabolize and they're all, they all have cognition that we're not alone in being aware of our surroundings. And in fact, nothing could be further from the truth that all life is conscious of its surroundings. It has to be in order to be alive, uh, in order to maintain its coupling with the environment and to metabolize. It has to be able to sense and react to the environment that it's in. And that's sort of the basics of all thought processes is sensing and reacting it just gives me a, a i don't know it gives me a much there's something there's just something trans, transcendental about when you when you realize that those orchids are yeah those um, are beautiful they're beautiful but they're alive just like i'm alive you know i guess in some way it sort of makes you feel less alone on the on or and also that nature is the planet is supporting us uh lynn used to make sort of make fun of people who were out like save the planet she thought that was kind of silly that the planet was really the thing that really supports us not the other way around and i think that's true i think that you know we would be we would be much wiser and you know, not that I would, wouldn't, wouldn't want to say we would be better stewards of the planet because I don't think we've ever been stewards of the planet. I don't think we should be stewards. And I don't think we should be stewards either. No. I don't think we're really capable of We are capable of saving ourselves from ourselves. You think? I don't. <laughs> I don't think there's much evidence of it, but I think, you know, if there's any hope for us, it's that we are capable of saving ourselves from ourselves. Well, it would be nice. Donald Trump would argue oh, strongly against that. But uh, but it would be nice if people were able to take on these new ideas that offer very different orientations than the standard Western orientation. Obviously, indigenous people have had this yeah. all along. I, th- I think I think indigenous people believe that they are being cradled by nature. Yeah, you know, they're participating. I think, I think when you look at what, the Hitchcock Center for the Environment here in Amherst is a an institution that runs a lot of programs for children, mm-hmm. taking children out into the outdoors. And I was talking to somebody there. It's really they have a real profound problem now taking children out into the woods. They're scared of the woods. Mm -hmm. Now, when I was a kid... Because of ticks? No. They're just... The the natural world is the other in a very unfortunate way. When you have children who are 
you know, their relationship is between their digital device and themselves more than between even themselves and other kids, mm -hmm. I would submit that there's a problem there. I'm not someone who thinks that, that digital devices are necessarily unhealthy, but I think when they exclude all of the other parts of being alive and being human, they tend to become unhealthy. If the world is not all competition and it's not linear and there are things cooperating who themselves are on, even though you're not supposed to say cooperation, but they're interacting yep. to some degree. Even and interdependent. Interdependent, even on broader scales of taxonomy or whatever than we normally assume. Well, don't, for instance, like you don't have to use cooperation. But understanding that the that that nature is interdependent, it's radically interdependent, mm -hmm. gives me a much more hopeful feeling that that we might be able to learn something from nature. I mean, there's a great scene in in Symbiotic Earth of Lynn at the Laguna Figueroa biological mats, and she's pointing in the water at the at the at the bacterial mat and saying, people are ruining their environment. These bacteria are, are creating a livable environment for themselves. Mm -hmm. I'd say we have a lot to learn from them. Thanks to Jim McAllister, and thank you for listening. If you'd like to know more about some of the things we talk about, including Jim McAllister's very interesting newsletter, you can find that on the show notes, where you can also comment and subscribe to the Big Chew podcast. My website is at www.meetyourmyth.com. Bye for now.